Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is, well, unlike the budget, always back in black. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always as well, and Iman Mahanti. How are you, Doc? I am very good, Captain. How are you? I'm very good. We should be playing the ACDC song, Back in Black, shouldn't we? Yeah. Well, we, we could if the budget was back in black, but it's not. Well, it's going to be in black someday, <laughs> sometime, I don't, I don't in know. the future, maybe. In, in our lifetime? No, nah, no. Nah. It's a very big deficit. Well, we'll talk, well, so here's the thing. I know you've heard a lot about the budget this week. We will try and break it down in a slightly entertaining and slightly useful way. We'll try and avoid most of the jargon and get through the budget because it does, there's some big deals in those numbers. Certainly the market loved it. So we've got to talk about it from that perspective. At the very, very least, we will talk about some other components. We'll talk about the US stimulus doc. Speaking of budgets and other things. Now, we're recording this on Thursday, the 8th of October in the morning. Frankly, between now and the, this time the podcast goes to air, by the time our listeners listen to it, this story could have changed half a dozen times because the, the tweeter-in-chief in the US, uh, the stimulus was on when he came out of hospital. Get this deal done was the first tweet. Next tweet was, I'm putting off all stimulus talks until the, after the election. Now we think the talks are back on. Certainly the market was up overnight in the, in the US. But again, it could have changed three or four times between now and our listeners actually listen to this podcast. But we will try and talk a little bit about that, at least try and work out what is going on. Mate, We've got to talk about buy now, pay later, don't we? It's in the news again with two big results from two, well, I was going to say big companies. These are probably the second tier buy now, pay later. So interesting results there. I'll get your thoughts in particular. And mate, we have got so much mailbag. Of course, we pre-recorded last week's show. So we've got two weeks of mailbag to get through. I guess we should get on with it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. So, look, we have to talk. The, the, the only news macro-wise of the week, well, not really only, I suppose, after, the, after Donald Trump's tweets, but the only Australian macro news that matters is Josh Frydenberg's second budget. Now, it was only, well, I was going to say it was 12 months ago. It wasn't actually. It was May last year. When the Treasurer said that the government, the budget will be back in black, they had mugs printed up. This was their headline budget. Everything was going to be good again. Finally, they'd fixed the de- deficit disaster. And then COVID hit. <laughs> and, and frankly, throughout the plans of every single treasurer and finance minister, chancellors of the exchequer right around the world. I mean, you know, this, this is scramble territory. And Josh Frydenberg, far from the first budget to be back in black in probably close to a decade, this is now the biggest budget deficit since, I think, is it the Great Depression or the Second World War? In any case, longer than my lifetime, longer than your lifetime. I think almost longer than both our lifetimes put together. It's getting pretty close to that. Um, this was a big, big spending budget, mate. So let's go through some numbers. More than $200 billion in deficit for the current financial year. More than $1.5, I think it's $1.7 trillion in gross government debt when it t- when it tops out and its highest point in the forward estimates. You're a brave man if you think it's as high as it gets, by the way. But $1.7 trillion, money being thrown around like, I don't know, I, I think, I'll, I'll give, well, I'll start with a bit of commentary. I will give the government credit. The government that was, going to be all about fiscal responsibility and getting rid of debt and all that kind of stuff, had to throw that out the out the window when the circumstances changed. And they get full credit for that. A government that tried to, a little bit like what some of the world did in the GFC. Remember there was the whole austerity movement in much of Europe in particular, which was just an absolute disaster. The government knew and learned from that and at least put their ideology aside to deliver a very, very, very big spending budget. Um, money for everybody, money for everything. This was a This was a big deal. Yeah, um, so, so lots, lo, uh, lots of it's a stimulatory budget, like you would expect. Yeah, um, you know, uh, you're the budget uh, geek here. <laughs> I um, am the budget my, geek. My, my my theory with the budget is very simple. Um, <laughs> the budget is the budget. That's true. And it's uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's um, for the accountant to know <laughs> and for me to not care about because, like, I mean, you know. There's deficit, which basically means that, yeah. you know, the future doesn't look as good as it should be, <laughs> um, which means do not rely on uh, the, you know, basically the government to do to the heavy lifting for you, which basically means you should do your own heavy lifting, which means if the government is giving you any money back, I'll just take all of it and invest it. I like that right? a lot. Mate. Which is uh, not what actually the government wants. Right? <laughs> the government wants you to take all of that money and spend it and probably take some more debt and spend that too, right? So uh, I think, you know, so in my in uh, my, my high level highlight was a lot of a <laughs> lot of demand for spending a lot of you know uh, hope hope for spending yeah um 
uh, yeah, and I don't know how much of that is going to be spent. But yeah, <laughs> if if I have to say, well, a couple of things. I think it's a good idea to cut taxes. Um, it is part of the debate around, you know, I mean, ta- taxes are being cut proportionately. Yeah. Um, I think that's the right thing to do, in my opinion. Um, I mean, in, if you're if you're cutting taxes mm-hmm. proportionally, the mo- those people who have paid more are going to get more back. But everybody's, I think, benefiting from yeah. the tax cut. That's that's one. Yeah. And. You know what happens to that money? I don't know. Uh, the second thing I think I, uh, I would say is that there's all of these, um, uh, I guess, the propensity or the push to buy things, or you know, uh, and and the, the rules around depreciation and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. They're working out. So that's that's stimulatory. But but yeah, um, I'd say the budget was good, yep. but nothing revolutionary. So let's. I want to start with one of the points you raised, mate, because I'm, I'm no I'm no physics expert, as you are well and truly aware, and our listeners are well and truly aware. But the, it, your 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 contrast between spending and saving, I think, is a really really important one. And it almost feels like to me, you know, they, they talk about you know quantum uh, is it quantum physics where you know particles behave at a, at a nano level differently to their, than they behave at a macro level, right? I'm, I'm going to horribly mash that up, but the idea is basically the things we see, the way things operate on a large scale, you would think would be effectively just a magnification of the small scale stuff but small scale stuff actually operates differently and this is i think the the challenge right like at an economic level we need stimulus which means more spending across the economy private and public at an individual level as you rightly said we'd be saying to people hey we know the economy needs stimulus but at a personal level you want to make sure your balance sheets are kind of pretty tidy here right because you don't want to get yourselves in trouble and it's a really difficult tension to have where you want to say be responsible but also people want to maybe feel like they should be part of the solution, which is go and support your local shopkeeper, go and support your local you know, cafe, restaurant, uh, tourism operator, whoever it is, depending on where we are, of course, in the country, what the COVID restrictions are. But there is a real there is a real dichotomy there between what's good for the country and what's good for the individual. Yeah, th- that's definitely true. Well, you know, I would challenge that view too. I think okay. one, of, one of the reasons I'll challenge that view is I think and this is not this is just not an Australia specific thing. This is this is worldwide. I think there's this view era. So, you know, if I had to backtrack, I'd say that there's an economic view that consumer driven spending or, or or basically spending is is what's going to drive the economic growth, right? right? But I think there's the other side of the coin is, you know, there's only so much coffee people can have. There's only so much <laughs> steak people can have. I'm not, sure about, well, I'm not sure about either of those two things. I think I could actually have more coffee and more steak. Well, but I, I was just thinking, <laughs> about my, my, you know, so if, like, I get to the point of those people who have yeah. cut back on spending. But yeah, there's yeah, also yeah. the the the... Um, the fact that there's only so much <laughs> consumption that you can have. Right. And there's a shift in consumption too, right? There's a shift in consumption to digital, right? Yep. Then the other thing is that, you know, you want people to spend on tourism, but if you if your borders are closed, yeah. um, well, there's only so much tourism you can do, right? right? Exactly. Why would I spend on uh, money on a hotel in Sydney if I live in Sydney? I wouldn't, yep. right? Yep. Yep. But if I could go to <laughs> Queensland, exactly. maybe I would consider spending that money. So <laughs> yeah. there's all those things. So I think, yep. y- you know... Um, y- the larger risk is behavioral changes, right? And yeah. uh, there might be long-term behavioral changes that people might change, you know, cook more at home, yeah. right? That would cut spending in different ways, yeah. right? And at, at a higher level, I think from a government point of view, as I said, it's not revolutionary. It's doing the, basically the same thing, expectations of the same thing. And, and maybe it works. Uh, all you need is maybe things to work in the margin and maybe it's mm-hmm. fine. But I think there is no attempt to, uh, to create new jobs and when I say new, I mean different jobs yeah. over the long term. Yeah. I don't see anything in the budget that does that. There was there was absolutely no big there was no big vision, big picture stuff in here, right? This was literally a bit of a turn up the wick on what's already burning. There was yeah. nothing and it, this was, you know, I, it, this is either this is either the, the cautious right way to go about just not not scaring the horses, or it's a big, big missed opportunity. If you had to spend two hundred billion dollars, you're gonna have a deficit of that sort of size you could have been excused for having something meaningful and, yeah. and different as part of that spending. That, that, that's Yeah, so that's my point. Yeah, yeah. So you have this huge deficit, but the deficit is not delivering you any game-changing ideas or even thought process, right? It's basically, you know, we need to go and spend, buy more coffee and have more steak and, <laughs> uh, you know, go uh, go for tourism somewhere where we can't go and, and things like that. Yep. It, it seems a budget or like, you know, okay, if you need more office furniture, buy more office furniture, 
computer yeah. or you know buy more computers buy you know uh, do a reno job yeah. it's all the same old ideas and uh, so i think that's yeah so I, my high level takeaway was um, if covid has taught me something it has taught me that you you know and, and this is true for companies right companies which had good balance sheets survived companies which were prepared for the future survived yeah. companies which were not prepared for the future and didn't have good balance sheets had a hard time yep. right and that's that's the same thing is true for your own balance sheet and what you do so and therefore this basically tells me that well you know you need to look out uh for yourself and <laughs> uh, and you know yeah so that, that was point. my takeaway i like it mate. very very good point uh, look let's let's go through some of the specifics then just just to cover them off quickly for our for our listeners uh, we won't spend too much time on it of course but we'll, we'll work on through as we go the part of part of the budget i suppose uh, that got the most attention this was a this was a you know big spending budget across the board, but personal tax cuts bought forward for I saw number eleven and a half million Australians. So let's call it twelve million among friends. Almost everybody is getting everyone, everyone is paying tax is getting a tax cut it's being bought forward to July one this year. Um, now of course it's already been past July one, so we'll get some of that back in our tax when we do the tax at the end of the financial year. The rest will come back in fortnightly or weekly or, or monthly payments in reduced taxation as our payroll officers get these things sorted out. That's a big chunk of cash, man. I have a view that solving solving temporary problems, I mean, this is a big, big, big problem, but it's, but it's only temporary. COVID will go away at some point or, or we'll learn to live with it, but either way, we'll get back to normal. That's that's a temporary problem, but we're solving it with a permanent tax cut. You and I both just mentioned the fact that, you know, this is a generational deficit. We, I don't expect, we'll see the, the debt paid off in the next 20 years, quite honestly. I hope, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think it's going to happen. That feels to me like putting the budget into a structural problem to fix a temporary solution feels like it's a bit off kilter. Yeah, it's, it's a, like so. I guess the one way to think about this is, you know, I'm a big fan of small government, less right. government. So therefore, in my view, I think one way to solve for many of the problems is so. If I backtrack and I say, well, I actually don't expect the government to be able to solve most problems that people will have in fifty years. Right. Actually, I think fundamentally the governments are incapable of solving them, <laughs> right? That's because very depressing. Well, it's not. It's not depressing. But then the best solution there is to cut less of taxes. Let people actually, you know, as people become better at it, people, you know, become more informed, um, and technology and solutions improve. Giving more money to people actually is probably the right solution, right? right, so, right, right. so high taxation basically means that you're expecting the government to do the heavy lifting. Low taxation would mean that you're expecting people to do the heavy lifting, yeah, yeah. right? And uh, you know, uh, the, the, so from my point of view, I think you know maybe this is the right thing. I, if if um, if the government is not going to solve many of these problems, maybe private sector will solve the problems and people yeah. can pay for the solutions uh, over time. So. You know, maybe think, it's not a big deal. I think that's right. I guess where I would say I think there's a, a challenge on that. And I think that's, you know, I don't necessarily share the same strength of view as you do on that one, but I do think that's a fair view. Where I think that the challenge on that one is there was no there was no similar tax cut, or oh, sorry, spending cuts. You know, for all the small government, they cut taxes, but didn't cut the other side of the equation. That is, if you're going to offset revenue, you've got to offset it with some spending. Otherwise, you have that structural deficit. I guess whichever way you look at it, either taxes shouldn't have been cut or they should be cut. But then there needs to be a, some sort of equivalent spending cut to kind of rebalance that, to bring that structural balance back in a, in a view. There was no sense the government had plans to do that. So there is still that structural imbalance, whichever side of the deficit you fall on, whether it's spend more, raise more, or spend less, you know, um, spend less, raise less. They've kind of gone, well, let's let's spend the same, but raise less. And that, that to me, feels like the structural problem. Oh, well, you know, they could increase GST at some point over, you know, in, maybe not now, maybe in a few years, they can increase the GST. I mean, that seems like, you know, expanding the scope of GST and uh, increasing that seems like, a, you know, a, a fair way maybe to tax. You consume more, you tax, mm. you know, you tax more. Yeah, interesting. Uh, let's go to company taxes now. Three big kind of buckets here. The first was we had increase to accelerated depreciation. When I say increases, look, this is this gets really knocky and very boring very quickly. But you know, so when you buy an asset, you know the tax rules say you can write off that asset over a number of years. So if you if you've got a, a car that's going to last you ten years, you can you know effectively claim a tenth of that cost on your tax over each of those ten years because it's a long term asset. The, the, this budget, I mean, it's a, it's a, a sweep, it's not a big deal for most people, but it's a sweeping change. Effectively, almost every asset any business buys now is written off in the year of purchase 
rather than over any length of time. And what that does is it brings forward the deduction. So let's pick a $30,000 car. Rather than claiming three grand a year over 10 years, and if you're an accountant out there, don't tell me what the depreciation schedule is on cars. I honestly don't care, but I appreciate that 10 years may not be the, may not be the official tax ruling on cars. Let's call it five, okay? I'll, I'll meet you halfway. So you buy a $30,000 car, that's six grand a year over five years. And so in year one, you outlay the 30 grand, but you claim six grand back on the tax. Next year, another six, next year, another six. From basically this point forward, as soon as the budget's passed or as soon as it's gazetted into law anyway, you can claim a full, the full whack of that up front. And that's supposed to be, you know, getting companies to go and spend more money more quickly because, hey, we get the whole benefit now. The, the, the you know, the, the question of, well, do we wait, don't we wait, we've got more tax to pay. It certainly makes upgrading, buying, increasing, replacing assets a heap more attractive. So here's my view on this. Okay, I actually don't care about this rule at all, oh, okay. and, I think, and the reason I don't care about this is I think it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre complexity that we have. Like if some, if a business is buying something, just allow them to, and if it is deductible, just allow them to deduct it upfront or to choose how long they want to deduct it for, and you know that should be a choice for the business to apply. I mean, having these stricter rules around, yeah. you know, I'm going to allow you to deduct it over five years or three years or four years or maybe right now, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's basically, basically looks like we're creating extra work for the, you know, like, I mean, business needs it. Yeah. So they, they get it, right? I, yep. I mean, right right now, it seems like you're basically telling people if you are deferring buying something, you can buy it now because yep. you can get a tax cut. Effectively, like, yes. But that sounds like a very bizarre idea to me. It's, it's a very bizarre <laughs> approach you know it's going to work that right oh yeah it's, it's going to work it's going to work but you know it's fundamental it's it's going to work but it's because fundamentally like it's fundamentally well, it's, but it's fundamentally broken because you are you are you are um uh, it's it's what i call it's like it's similar to investing right if you let the tax decisions decide how you're going to invest you're going to invest poorly yeah like if you're going to you know you should be investing yeah. with a long-term yeah, vision totally. you should lead your <laughs> you should think about your yeah. uh financial planning or yep. your business planning with a long-term yep. vision this is stupid in many yeah. ways this is basically like short-termism yeah. right so totally. all we're doing is tweaking rules a bunch of people have jobs because they're tweaking rules yeah. and they're busy changing that oh last year was this you know it's just complexity Right. What happened to thinking about well, this is what we're going to have in long, you know, in five years, and therefore this is how it should be. So you know, it 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 it, it seems to be counter to all logical thinking, um, and yeah, I think find find this bizarre. But yeah, I I agree that you know it's going to result in some spending. So what? Yeah. Well, I, I guess you know, to whatever extent it does happen. And look, this is I got to say I give governments a hard time a lot of the time because. They, they don't often understand or allow for the fact that people behave emotionally rather than purely rationally. This is one where they've got this right. If you're looking to stimulate spending, this is exactly the sort of thing you would do, which costs a little bit of money, absolutely, but it'll have an outsized impact. As you say, it should be no different. <laughs> the investment decisions you make should be no different. I mean, there is some time value of money, I guess. 30 grand up front rather than over five years is worth more today than then. So there is some rational component to it, uh, but it will. Have, it's, a, it's a very nice little behavioural psychology insight which is going to make a, a meaningful difference the other the yeah, other one so, so, okay. I was gonna say, so this, is, this is why i call it bizarre right it's bizarre <laughs> because what what the strategy here from a from a budget point of view yeah. is very simple i want to tap into a behavioral bias yep. so so number one the big word here is behavioral bias yes. right yes and i want to tap that to create spending so it's in other words i want you to spend even if you don't need to spend yep Right. So, how is this good? This is actually not good, right? Yeah. You should only spend if it is going to be beneficial to your business, yeah. right? Otherwise, you should not spend. That is the logical way to do it. So, here's, this is here's, here's the economic problem, though, right? I think I agree with you, except to the extent that it then it's a bit like that the kind of quantum level stuff we were talking about before is that's true. But if everyone does that then the economy goes into a deep long-term recession. No, but that's because the government can't think long-term. The government doesn't want to create the economy of the 21st century. It wants to stay in the 19th century, right? And it's it's trying to trigger the people to behave like 19th century. So I think the government has is actually creating bigger problems, mm. right? I, I, think I, I, I think that's yeah. true, but you can't, I mean, even if they, even if they did what, the, even if you had the, the strings of the treasury tomorrow and they gave you all the decisions in the world, the plans you have in place would be would take five, ten years to, to come to fruition. The stimulus in the next, we, we need a deep recession in the meantime. There is, and I agree that there's no there's no destination in this budget, but at least they've got the journey right, right? If we said we want to be here by 2030 and we're going to start today, the next 10 years would be terrible while we got there because you actually need that kind of momentum, just the general economic activity to get us to that point. If you stopped it now and said, let's not stimulate anything in 2020, 2021, 2022, but we're building for the future, 
it would be a deep, deep, deep recession. So you know what I would do? I would have basically said, you know, instead of you know doing all this dance with you know, oh, I want you to buy these assets and I'll depreciate, I'll just reduce company tax. Right. Right. Just make the company tax favorable for businesses to actually operate, so that more businesses can be created, so there's more profit to be generated. Right. I think profit motive is is probably much a much bigger driver, yeah. right, uh, than, you know, spending motive, right? You know, this, this is just basically saying go buy that car, yeah. you know, go buy that, uh, go buy that additional equipment that you probably don't need and, and stuff like that. You know, anyways, um, <laughs> this is a part I actually didn't, you know, did not appreciate. But anyways, I, I, I can, there can be different different opinions on this. Yeah, nice. Um, like I think, yeah, I I. I, I and this is this I guess the, this was the ideological framing of the budget. I think it's an important kind of topic you raised because that is the the key question. The, most of the money, other than the tax cuts, which are massive, by the way, but most of the actual other activity is being applied at a business level with the the hope that businesses will take some decisions which will help stimulate the economy rather than put the money in consumers' hands and get them to stimulate the economy that way. And there is that question whether it's business tax cuts, whether it's accelerated depreciation, whether it's now, they, there were some incentives to, they, they are being spent to hire young workers. If you hire someone between 16 and 30, you get some money. If they're between 30 and 35, you get half that cash. If you're 36, I guess you miss out. Um, it's, our apprentices are being subsidized even further. You know, there is there is a lot of business-focused spending with the hope that hiring and, and spending by businesses will kickstart the economy rather than at a consumer level. And I guess that's the, the ideological question being asked and, and obviously answered by the government in their own way. Um, fair to say, I think the opposition would have done things differently. You can make your you can make your own judgment about which of those two is is valid. But as you say, it's very much that case of go and spend now. <laughs> Just get us out of the hole. I actually share your frustration. There were no big picture long term plans as part of this. I think they did the right thing to, and you can argue about how it's spent, but just to kind of get us out of recession as quickly as possible and then sort of, you know, and, and then get on with it from there. That was a bit that was missing. They, they, get, on, they get on with it from their plans. Yeah, at high level to me, it was a bit too prescriptive. So like, I mean, you know, you hire young people, great idea, but it's prescriptive, right? You could cut taxes and say, well, you've now got more money left in your pocket, right. hire more people to grow right, your right. business, right? I mean, that's two different ways of doing things. Correct, and that, that's exactly, the, that's the government's right. view for sure. Yeah. Um, the last one it was stimulus payments for welfare recipients. If you're on, I think almost any welfare payment, there's there's a couple of two hundred fifty dollar checks heading your way. Um, that that is that is to some degree that component of of direct stimulus at a consumer level. And I guess it makes sense at some point if you're not in work or not going to be in work, the business the business kind of incentives don't help you um, or don't help your part of the economy. The stuff you're exposed to. So that also makes some degree of sense. Overall, doc, two hundred I think thirty odd billion dollars worth of deficit here. Also fair to say, it's always not going to be that number. It's not going to be somewhere between 150 and 300, right? Like the the, the, the I, I people have been really critical about the assumptions in the budget. I think that's unfair in the sense that the government had to take a view on making some assumptions. And the big one is, you know, how quickly borders open and how quickly we find a vaccine. And those two are apparently they reckon if if the vaccine is found earlier, it could add up to 34 million dollars to the budget, billion dollars sorry to the budget, as in reduce the deficit by that much. If it's later, it could add as much as 50 billion dollars to the deficit. I mean, those are massive swing factors. <laughs> it almost it almost makes the summary of the 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 balance, you know, 230 million dollars, almost not worth talking about because it could be somewhere between, as I said, 150 and 400 if if things go really well or really badly. Um, that so I think that's something we need to be mindful of. This is a plan. I think we have to look at it as a, as a set of plans, almost to your point about, you know, is it about the budget itself or is it about the plans they're put in place? I think we have to say, these are the plans, this is what the government's trying to do. We desperately all hope they're successful because we want the economy to get back on, on its feet as quickly as possible. But the balance is almost, it's almost an afterthought, it's almost not worth talking about because it's, you, you get very, very, very long odds that they're even going to be close to that number. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, you know, it's these are very hard things to predict. So it's going to be a range of different possibilities and yeah. Very nice. All right, let's move on, shall we? Yeah, let's do that. Cool, no budget. Budget over. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Okay, mate, so here's the <laughs> next part of the problem. Speaking of stimulus and budgets, I did say we're going to leave budgets behind. We will. We can't quite leave stimulus behind. We are still... and I. Maybe like it's so obviously Donald Trump is Donald Trump, and we know he's a a volatile character. Um, as I said, there was a tweet when he left hospital that we want we want to get a deal done, and he asked Congress via Twitter as he does to you know have the conversation, have the negotiations, get it done. Two days later, he said, "Nope, not going to do anything until after the election." Uh, this is 
frankly not surprising and unusual. We're used to this volatility, but it's probably a reminder, I think, that I, frankly, I mean, I guess my key point, my takeaway, yours might be different. It's just, it drives me nuts that markets are swinging backwards and forwards by one, one and a half, two percentage points on this sort of news, which over the over the course of time, you know, averages out to effectively zero. The, the, the short-termism of, oh, there's a deal. Oh, there's no deal. Oh, there's a deal. Oh, there's no deal. It, it's... <laughs> It's it, like it is a sideshow, and I think for our listeners, the message from me, I suppose, is just try desperately as much as you can. It, it does hurt when your portfolio is up and down by lots in a in a given six or eight hour period. But I, I would just say to people, look, you've got to try and turn this noise off. You've got to try to ignore the volatility because it will drive you nuts trying to follow it. You know, it 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 plunge you from the depths of despair to the heights of 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 you know exuberance and, and back again just just on a daily basis. You've got to look through this and say we will have a stimulus at some point. There will be a vaccine at some point, um, but you know, trying to manage these short-term things is just crazy, hey? Yeah. Um, again, it. So I don't know what the debate there is. I mean, that that uh, payments that we are talking about there, such sort as of a twelve hundred dollar check or something, it's less. I mean, it's, it has a stimulatory effect, but it's it's less. I think I don't look at it as stimulus. Stimulus. What I look at it is basically welfare, right? So it's right. it's basically twelve hundred dollars to those people who really need that money, yeah. right? Um, so and it has some stimulus effect, but you know it's basically going to pay for people's basic needs. So I don't know why there needs to be so much debate around, um, yeah, around. Uh, Need versus, I guess, you know, growth. You know, st- yeah. stimulus to me means basically trying to get growth, and whereas, um, yeah, welfare. So, but yeah, over the long term, it shouldn't have much impact. But markets are markets. Markets uh, <laughs> that's right. love to react to news. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that's yeah. I mean, that, that's the summary, right? It's it's just a non-issue, right? All right, let's move on back to Australia, back to the hottest sector this year, still. It's funny how, you know, between COVIDs and, and budgets and everything else, we've kind of stopped talking about this for a couple of weeks, but roaring back onto the pages of the business press today, mate, is buy now, pay later. No surprise to anybody. It's the only thing anyone wants to talk about. I've said before I want people to be a little bit careful about that because it's one of those things when the tide's all the way in, when everyone's talking about something, you can assume that at least from a uh, sentiment perspective, um, if everyone's excited about it, just be careful about the prices you're paying across the sector. Again, not talking about companies individually or even as a group. Just just be careful in general. Take a take a cautious approach to something like that. When everyone's excited about something, you talked before, Doc, about you know the the the, the consensus tech buys, for example, in the US. I don't know that buying our is necessarily consensus in Australia yet, but I'll tell you what, there's so much excitement about this stuff, and so many people throwing so much money at them. A bit of sentiment change could meaningfully hurt and particularly those businesses that aren't going to survive or aren't as high quality as the others so let me let me make that as a as a writer today sezzle record quarter three sales and split it triples merchant sales you said to me i can't remember the exact words you used before we started recording but something along the lines of you know these guys are still finding growth this is this this train is still careening down the tracks um at at you know close to a million miles an hour uh, this is a sector that's still delivering growth yeah, like so. I mean, you know, if I look, if if I'm a um, if I'm a running a bank and I have credit cards that I issue, yeah. and I'm looking at these numbers, I would be really scared <laughs> because you know they're just gaining traction in terms of merchants, getting traction in terms of um, consumers, and so you know, valuation is one thing. I, I think by now it seems to me that. Uh, buy now pay later as a sector yeah. is a very established concept yeah. but as a it's an established concept i think which has proven itself right and it, and now the question really is how fast and how quickly is it going to take share yeah uh, and is it taking share from traditional players or is it just creating new market opportunities and and those are the very interesting questions right i mean if everybody if each one of these guys are growing at like 200% yeah uh those are phenomenal. Two hundred percent growth yep. is phenomenal because you know that that type of compounding for a few years is really really big. Astonishing, deal, right? right? Yeah, it's yeah, astonishing. Yeah. So um, you know, uh, so I would say that you know this is something to keep an eye on, and it's you know it's basically bad news for traditional credit. Yeah, I agree. It's how do you? Just a question maybe on this. Then how do you when you're thinking about the. Um, analyzing companies like this or thinking about sectors like this the the concept seems to be here to stay as you say who 
what, how, where, how, why, how much. Other questions still remain to be answered, though. Um, who's going to benefit? Does anyone benefit? Is this, you know, the, the, the concept is here. How do you translate that from a conceptual investment approach? Yeah, so when uh, something is really early on, like as is the case here, um, one way to think about this is, well, you think about the market, think about the total opportunities and, uh, you know, total opportunity, and then you sort of try to identify who the leaders are, right? And you, you, if you can identify the leaders, you probably take a basket approach and you invest across, you know, a few of them. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in participating in the trend, it's really hard to pick winners early on, right? Um, because things can change. You know, they're all early in the game. Is it inevitable that someone does win? I, so I guess I, you know, the, the the counterpoint here is airlines, right? Where if you'd have said in, I've said this example before. So if you told me 1970. That airline travel is going to be up, I don't know, 10,000 fold or something in the, ne- in the next 50 years. <laughs> Maybe until 2019 anyway. I would have mortgaged my house, sold my kids, you know, lived out of my car, put every money into airline stocks, and I would have lost it, or, the lot, tw- you know, three yeah. or four times over. The, 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 the idea of, you know, travel, uh, travel is cheap and here to stay and, and going to grow phenomenally was the idea. In the event, though, that wasn't enough to make money for airline stocks. How do you differentiate between that broad trend of, the idea of you know some sort of scheduled, delayed, literally pay later, buy now pay later uh, approaches here. Is there, is there a framework that says, and this is why there's a certain amount of profit to be made, or this is why a certain company's going to be able to make profit? Do you, does, does it matter? Is it just a game, a game of odds? Do you think about well, what if this is airlines, or what if this isn't? How, how do you? I, I'm, I'm curious as to that bit about the the growth piece um, of the of the idea versus think about company profitability and success? Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, a very quick, and I don't have a definite answer here. So, I mean, one of the big things here, though, is, is to think about, so if you think about airlines, right? I mean, airlines is a very interesting example, but airlines are basically like buying commodities right. in many ways, right? Because a lot of it depends on the cost of the of the plane yeah, and okay. then the cost of fuel. Yeah, You've got two cost bits that you really can't control. Yep. Um, here you don't have that sort of dynamic, right? So you, here you're basically op- operating a toll booth business, yes, right? And you know you could think there's going to be a lot of competition, but that might reduce the total percentage cut that you're getting in the toll booth, right? But there are a couple of things that work in your favor. A that you know there's probably a bare minimum at which people there is an equilibrium, right? right? So there's and at that equilibrium there is scale, yeah, okay, right? So if you're getting one percent of gazillion dollars, you're still <laughs> you making. Yeah. You're still making a lot of money. Um, yeah, and I'll take that. and and there is no, there is no like the, there is no cost. Like I mean, it's a, it's a it's a capital like model in many ways, right? Yeah. Because yeah. once you've got the network um, built, you don't you don't have like you know you, the extra dollars that are flowing through really is not going to cost you extra. It, 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 it does not directly increase your cost. Right, right, right. right. Uh, that's one bit. The other bit really that is different is I don't think there's going to be like, so I guess the limitation for airlines was capital, yep. right? If you had capital, you could start an airline. Right. Makes sense. But, but here, <laughs> if you have capital you at, at scale, once this is an established uh, business, yeah. just having capital or being a bank does not mean that you can become a buy now pay later. Right. Because it's it's not it's effectively a two sided network, right? You've got the sellers and the buyers, right? And you need to be you know your payment model needs to be accepted at sellers, yep. and for sellers to accept your payment model, you need those buyers. Yep. So once you've got maybe a few of these people uh, in the system, it it wouldn't be that there's going to be the seventh and eighth because you know there's no motivation for the seller to install another solution, have another solution from, you know, bank XYZ or company ABC. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to, in my mind, I think the, the way I look at it is the ones that are able to grow to sufficient scale yep. are going to do well, yep. uh, are likely to do well. And, and then those businesses that have stranglehold on consumers and therefore um, can offer payments from the consumer side are likely to be the other ones that are going to be able to offer um, uptake of you know buy now pay later solution yeah, at um, the merchant end, right? So the yeah, example, yeah. so the PayPal for example, um, is is a perfect example which would fit. You know, PayPal actually can roll it out, whereas Commonwealth Bank 
can't. Right. Like it's just harder for Commonwealth yeah. Bank to yeah. roll it out. Um, so, so, so it's. Uh, I, I don't think it's the airline. I also don't think it's. It's. This is not airline. This is not software. This is basically payments. Yeah. And scale is the game here. Yeah. Right. Does Does the fact they're handling the cash make it less attractive on one level? I.e., it requires capital, and you. Yeah. There is. It, this is not. Just, it's not purely toll booth in the sense that. You've always got to, you know, you're, you're not just collecting the cash. You've got to have up front of the cash to build the road and then collect the cash, which is, you know, we think about toll booth as just clipping the ticket and nothing else, which is the capital light solution, which is wonderful like software. Um, on the other hand, as you say, there is something about that sheer dominance and size and scale that actually is also its own barrier to entry, right? So it's, it's a less attractive business model at startup, but maybe it's actually a more sustainable one. I mean, there's probably a reason we've only got four big banks in Australia and have had for the last you know, 40 years, which is largely about the fact once you get to a certain size and scale, it's really, really hard to compete with that sheer capital you know, uh, uh, bank, literally. Yeah, so that, 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 that's exactly uh, that's exactly correct. So I, th- I think that's where you once you get to scale and once you basically you're turning capital, you're basically rotating the capital around, right, a number of times. Yep. And and as the sales increase, you need that that scale of capital, and the one that's got the scale of capital is actually going to get more of that capital because they'll be able to you know grow quicker, yeah. able 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 to. So I, I think that that completely makes sense, uh, and and it, it is a trend where I think a global player. Is likely to be more successful. Then that's why I said the banks have less of an opportunity yeah. here because they're not global players. Their scale is going to be small. Um, you know, so Afterpay, which is a global player. So it, 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 what, what I think is interesting is all of these businesses that are uh, in the buy now pay later. They're all trying to grow in the biggest um, uh, markets, right? Yeah. So where where the the e-commerce spend or the retail spend is very very high and very very large. So. Yeah, it, it is. It's a market that seems. Yeah. So it's 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 not software. It's basically payments, and it's not as it's not like a payment network company, uh, where which takes you know just because I'm making this travel through my network, I'm going to take a <laughs> yeah, cut yeah. of it. Uh, yeah. it, it. It's not that, but it is just a market in its infancy, and 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 there's there's a potential that it can steal a fair bit of money from the credit side, um, uh to this side, to the buy now, pay later side, right? And if it does that, and, and combined with the fact that uh, people are moving from cash to digital, so all of those, it's got a lot of, you know, um, for the lack of a better word, secular growth trends, yeah, okay. uh, you know, tailwinds behind it, um, which which make it, make it makes it attractive. That doesn't mean that every one of these things are going to work out, right? I mean, that's always the yeah, exactly, side. exactly. Yeah. My crystal ball time. Then the last question. We've spent plenty of time on this, but we know that our listeners love it, so we're happy to do it. Last last big question. How many winners are there in this game? I mean, if you if you think forward, I mean, there's, there's I think I, I counted seven or eight by now payloads just in the ASX alone recently. There's probably, I guess, another. This could be at least another dozen around the world trying to do something similar, but because innovation and, and and kind of copying go hand in hand. Um, how many winners are there in the end? I mean, how do you think about? Not, I don't expect an absolute answer, but as you think about what the future might look like, is it a case of? You know, one, two, three. Is is it all of them? Is it is it you know? Does this become a plethora of options, or is it is this, does this gravitate to a duopoly or, or you know three or four winners? Well, it's that's. It's, I mean, I don't have a definite answer on this one. Like, I mean, if the closest analogy I can think of is. Um, it's is payment networks, right, or payments yep. companies. So you know, you've got Amex, you've got Visa, you've got Mastercard, you've got Diners, you've got I know Chase, uh, you've got Alipay, uh, right. and I might I might Union be missing Pay. a few. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So that I mean, there are quite a fair few, yeah, right? And yeah. I mean, there's the dom- the dominant two are Visa and Mastercard, yeah. right? Uh, and then Amex behind them. So I mean, you know, maybe three, four. But I think the, the I think the most interesting thing in my mind is not buy now pay later alone i think okay. there is there is definitely this is sort of symptomatic of the trend away from big banks okay yeah to sort of you know new age banking yep, right sense. so this is you know the, the seller ecosystem the buyer ecosystem um you know seamless peer to peer lending and things like that and it's really i think that so this is basically disruption of banks yeah, as yeah. we know it yeah. and this is just one symptom of that yeah, yeah. and there are many other symptoms of that so that, you know um, yeah so I mean in my mind <laughs> the worst place to be right now is to own banking stocks uh, Australian <laughs> banking stocks Th- those are the dangerous you know those are basically uh, endangered territory because I think you know everything seems to indicate that they are being disrupted big time doesn't mean they're going to die immediately they wouldn't die they're too big to yeah, fail yeah, but you know yeah. it is it is basically 
that is the 19th century. <laughs> right. I, 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 I'm no fan of banks either. I'm probably less less critical than you are, though. Um, they've they've done pretty good at, at, at staying at the forefront of tech over the last sort of, you know, um, FPOS in Australia was one of the leading um, online kind of, I don't know what you call it, payment payment methods, I suppose. The idea that you could, you know, swipe a card and then, and then type a PIN number in, that was, that, was a, that was a pretty big, I won't say it was Australian innovation, it wasn't, but we took it really quickly. We took internet banking really quickly. The, the tap and go stuff has higher penetration here than the rest of the world. Is there not a sense that you know that the success they've had so far lends itself to them being able to pivot, whether that's by acquisition, by 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 offering something different? Um, they, despite those predictions of doom, they've done a pretty good job of staying at the forefront of tech in banking and finance over the last twenty or thirty years. So I'll differentiate a couple of different things. I don't want to be the the downer here. So, I'll, I'll, <laughs> no, so what I'll say is there is a difference between developing new solutions yep. and adopting new solutions. Right, okay. So the banks as you, you know are good at adopting things. Yep. But they're not gen- they're not creators of new things. So right. if there's a solution somewhere they're able to deploy it, I mean because they've got monopoly or duopoly or quadrupoly or whatever you want to call it, right? <laughs> yeah. Um and uh, Australia is a very urban uh, urbanized country, it's very yep. easy to deploy solutions at large scale. Yep. Because you know all you got to do is six seven cities and if you got deployed in six seven cities where most of the population is, you can get you can get the deep penetration you want. Yeah. Um but it's it's so I'm basically saying that if you think of innovation the afterpay is is innovation because it's deploying a new solution yeah, yeah, totally. at scale. Super impressive. Um, at scale yep. globally, yep. right? Whereas, you know, deploying FPOS solutions is, it, 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 uh, I, I think, is bringing an existing technology yeah. and deploying it. Oh, totally, yeah. And yep, yep. You don't know, think with Pineapple Pay Later, though, you, you couldn't imagine Australian Australian bank or banks as a group, either individually, the FPOS terminal payment network becomes a, buy now, pay later network or something, they could take the afterpay innovation well, and adopt it? So here's the thing, right? I mean, you know, maybe FPOS is widely used, but, you know, neither PayPal was invented here nor Square, sure. right? So, and the question behind that is why? I think there's yep. a difference between adoption and 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 and, and deployment and right. development, right? right? So I, I think that's, that's, uh, that's maybe lacking from the okay. bank's point of view. And... I, I don't know. Like, I mean, you know, the banks have their existing business, right? Like consumer lending, business lending. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they're in their sweet spot. There's yep. less competition. They can all be nice to each other. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they will. Yeah, and then if you know, so yeah. So I don't. I don't think. I don't. I think again, as I said, the banks, like this whole idea of new age banks, yep. or whatever you want to call it, new banks, or whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> And and how banking changes is is I think what you know the our buy now pay later is just one symptom of that. Nice. Let's move on, mate. We spent a little bit of time on that one, but it's a it's a useful conversation. You know what we get to move on to now? Tell me. It's mailbag time. All right, let's do it. Let's let's get into the full mailbag mail. Let's rip it open. We've got pages and pages and pages and pages of questions, as I mentioned over the last two weeks. So let's uh, let's get on with that. I had a couple of just I, I like using so we, we have our uh, here's, a, here's a news flash for our listeners. We have a special mailbag edition of Motley Fool Money on Sunday. I know it's a surprise for everybody. What I thought we would do, though, what we tend to do on our on our Friday podcast is cover some of the the big questions, the, the kind of investing questions that people have about the, the basics of investing or the fundamentals of investing. So let's start with a question from Jen. Jen says, Hi, Scott and Doc. I love the special, in air quotes, thank you, Jen, mailbag on Sunday. Super informative. I finally started investing at 48. Congratulations, Jen. Well done. Now, here's a really good question. My question for you both is for an explanation on why share prices fall after dividends are issued. Hope you can answer my question. Hashtag get doc on Insta for sure. Keep up the great work, Jen. Good question, mate. This is kind of one of those investing fundamental questions. Why on earth do share prices fall after the dividends are paid? Well, okay. So uh, the best way to think about this would be think about the value of a company um, as essentially in terms of enterprise value. So enterprise value is defined as the market capitalization of the yes. company, which uh, plus the cash the company holds, uh, sorry, minus the cash the company holds yep. uh, plus the debt yep. uh, of the company, right? So that's so it's effectively the price to buy out. Right, the right. company, at with its existing debt and with its existing cash right. at any given point. So the idea would be, if I wanted to, if you had a company called Doc Enterprises and it was just on the ASX for a million dollars, but you also had a million dollars in debt, if I wanted to buy that company free and clear, I have to buy the business from you or from the market, 
And I could keep that debt if I wanted to, but realistically, I'm assuming that million dollars in debt as part of my own personal balance sheet. So whether I pay the debt off or not, effectively, it costs me $2 million to buy that. I, I buy the business and I also basically absorb or, or take on the extra liability. Is that is that kind of right? That's, that's correct, right. So now when, so effectively, the enterprise value of the company changes. <laughs> <laughs> the mo- mo- uh, you know, the moment you you pay out the dividend because you know I've got less cash sitting there, right? right? So effectively, you would expect that the market cap kind of shrinks by the percentage of the amount that has just flowing out right. uh, from from the company's purse right. to your purse. Right. Uh, and that's really what happens. But you know, it doesn't always like if you know if the company's paying a, a percent dividend, your your share price doesn't always necessarily fall by a percent. It could fall by three percent. It could fall by half a percent. It depends on yeah, the mood nice. of the market. Can I, can I try an example, mate? So, Jen, if you had a, a company that was on the ASX, let's say, you know, so it's Doc Enterprises for a million dollars, and Doc Enterprises has $100,000 in cash, and it decides as a dividend to pay that entire $100,000 out to you as a shareholder. Now, if Doc Enterprises is, is valued fairly by the market a million dollars, or this is the current market price, the market's assuming that you get the business plus you get the cash. That, that's what you get, right? That's what Doc's talking about enterprise value. When the company says, actually, shareholders, here's the $100,000. You as a shareholder get hundred grand in cash, you feel pretty good, but the business must be worth $100,000 less by definition because it, 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 money is a money, dollar is a dollar is a dollar. If it was worth a dollar as part of Doc Enterprises and that dollar goes away, the Doc Enterprises must be worth a dollar less. And so it makes some sense, even though as a shareholder, you're not worse off, the money goes from your shareholding to your bank account. So you're still, you should have a million dollars worth of value, if that, if that makes sense. But instead of having a million dollars of, of Doc shares and no cash, You've now got nine hundred thousand dollars worth of dock shares and a hundred thousand dollars cash, and so that's where, the, the, as the money transfers, it makes sense the company should be worth less because it has less assets, but you as a shareholder still benefit from that. Is that fair, Doc? That is fair. I only got time for one more, mate. This is a this is a get a better rate question. You know, I love a better get a rate, get a better rate. You question. do. This one comes from Chris. He says he's, he's, he's Twitter is Twitter hashtag the hell out of this thing. Hashtag oh, sorry at TMF Scott P at Anivan Mahati at the Motley Fool AU. If one was to hashtag get a better rate. Tell you what, there's hashtags and handles and all sorts of stuff. Let's break that down. If one was to get a better rate, would you agree that accessing the lowest variable rate is the better option than locking at a lower fixed rate? All the calculators show that a fixed rate ends up more interest paid over the life of a loan. Doc, what do you reckon? Um, well, but the answer to that would be it depends, right? I mean, what is the variable rate and how the variable rate changes, how long you're keeping the loan, and what the rate on uh, on the fixed rate is, right? Yep. I mean, and, and, and I, I guess one difference, big difference with the variable versus fixed is on a fixed uh, on a fixed program, you wouldn't have the ability to keep any money in the offset, right? right. Correct. So if you have a variable, um, variable program where you either keep the money in the offset or you actually chuck in more money into that account or into the debt account with the redraw, maybe we redraw facility, then you, you know, you're accumulating less, um, you know, less interest, right? Yeah. So it really depends. I mean, I think the fixed rate... Uh, if a bank really wants you on a fixed rate, it's going to be more attractive than on a variable rate. It yep. should be, in, in theory, for the certainty, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, you get yeah. certainty, the bank gets certainty, everybody gets certainty. Right, right. Um, yeah, but I mean, again, it, it, so it really depends on, on time scale, uh, is my would be answer. Yeah, it does. Chris, uh, the only thing I would say to add to Doc's point is those calculators are a little bit one dimensional, two dimensional, maybe not, not three dimensional, certainly. Um, you need to think a little bit, maybe it's four dimensional actually, because time is the, is the key one here. Um, so there you go. They should be four dimensional, but they're not. Uh, a, a calculator, you've got to be a little bit careful. Things like um, if you look at the uh, comparison rate, for example, they are only over the life of the loan, and they may include different loan values, loan sizes, fees, repayment options, all that kind of stuff. And so I think Doc's dead right. Be very careful about um, offsets and extra repayments because you can't do those, and that can cost you a decent amount of money if you think about how much you might have otherwise in an offset, either upfront or over the life of the loan. So absolutely think about that. I have to say though, from looking at them, unless the fees are phenomenally high, sometimes what happens is the comparison rate is higher because they amortise the fee just over the short term fixed loan life. If that makes sense. So if you pay a a fee to start a new thirty year variable loan that fee is amortized over 30 years. If you pay that fee over for a one-year loan, then of course you amortize that fee over one year. Now, that can be a big deal, by the way. That can actually be the difference. But I would say, just be a little bit mindful of, um, generally speaking, I'm a fan of variable. 
But I have to say at the moment, for example, you normally get a fixed rate about half a percentage point less than a variable rate. Um, again, do your own homework, put your own numbers in, make sure you compare them. Use a broker or a comparison website to make sure you're getting the right deal. But I'm not entirely sure, again, depending on the loan value, the higher the loan value, of course, the lower the fees as a percentage. Uh, but I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't shun fixed rates arbitrarily. In fact, I'd almost, for one of the first times in a very long time, I think the fixed rates actually seem probably arguably more attractive for most people than variable rates. The only thing and I was going to say is don't pay a fee. That's Try hard not to right? pay a fee. How do you do that? Just by saying that, I'm not going to pay a fee. You want my business? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true, but you wouldn't want to cut your nose off spite your face, right? Like if you've got to pay a $100 fee to get a half a percentage point less in, in loan repayments, that's worth it rather than the reverse. I'm like, there's so much competition out there that I'm, I'm pretty certain that you can get a very, very good rate nice. with no fee. And that's effectively, that's effectively what the comparison rate's all about, right? It's supposed to roll those things up so you're not you know you're not, you're not being robbed on one hand you know, they're not robbing Peter to pay Paul so as Doc says absolutely look look at the best overall deal pay the lowest fee you can pay the lowest rate you can and put those two together and find the best rate well at least for the fee get something maybe you get a credit card or you need to yeah, get yeah, something yeah. for the fee you can't yeah, get yeah. Like, I, you know fee for nothing most importantly as you say Chris hashtag get a better rate now mate that'll do us for today but as I've already given away the big secret that no one was expecting we will be back this Sunday with a special mailbag edition. It's still special, isn't it? Oh, it's very special. <laughs> it's just not a secret anymore. Well, never, never really a secret. But before we do, I want you to join us on the socials. Now, Chris has already done us a favor by mentioning them, but I will do it again if you are got a pen and paper down or you're grabbing your phone out and opening up the Twitter app and logging in and make sure you want to follow us. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. That's all on Twitter. On Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia, pretty straightforward. I'm Scott Phillips Money. And on Instagram, our Twitter handles apply, at least for those of us who are on Twitter. Are you on Instagram yet, Doc? Uh, no. I, I am not into Instagram. There's some fun hashtags coming on Sunday. I'll give you a bit of a tip. So make sure you, make sure you listen to the, the Sunday mailbag. You can get me at TMF Scott P on Instagram or The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. And as always, you can also email us as some of our listeners have done. We have some of those questions queued up for our mailbag, info at fool.com.au. And our wonderful member services team will make sure those questions make their way to our special mailbag, uh, podcast mailbag, I should say, to make sure we can answer them for you on the show. Mate, that does it. We're done. Before we go, don't forget you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or of course, Podcast One. And if you do, if you do like what we're doing, please give us a rating, leave us a review, say some nice things, tell us how wonderful we are. Don't call me your drunk uncle. That's not very kind. Just tell people that I'm handsome, smart, good looking, funny, impressive. Or just that you like listening to the podcast. But whatever you need to do, please let people know because uh, that's how we find new listeners and hopefully how new listeners find us and hopefully we can improve their financial lives as well. Of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox, including some marketing, by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Sunday with another special dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.